If you will, open up to Psalm chapter 24. Psalms chapter 24. And I've entitled this, Knowing the Person in Whose Name We Go. We need to know who it is in whose name we go. And to know Him, first off, you've got to have a relationship with Him. So obviously, you need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, you know, many of you, as we start this today, many of you deliver things for the company that you work for from time to time. Right? You, I know several men in our church, are they deliver stuff. They deliver uh, I know James Goodwin delivers things. We've got postal workers that deliver things. Uh, we've got a bunch of different people either in their life currently or they've retired from a business where they have delivered products to different places. And when you arrive at your destination, usually your company's name is on the truck most of the time. Uh, and that reveals the purpose in being there. And when you arrive, you most likely present a bill or a document with the name of the person or company uh, to who you represent and are in need of compensation, right? When you get there to drop off whatever that product may be. Well, today we have a message to deliver. And today we will leave here understanding in whose name we go. And as we unpack this portion of scripture, I want you to consider in whose name do you go? In whose name do you go? Psalm 24, it, it's kind of... It's placed right there behind the most popular psalm, Psalm 23, uh, that many people go over and over and over again. If you've been on our Wednesday night several months back, I walked us through Psalm 24, which was phenomenal, not on my part, because there was a great book that helped guide me as I taught through that, and obviously it's the Bible, number one. But there was another fellow with the last name of Keller that has written, and it's uh, Psalm 23, Through the Eyes of a Shepherd. And that book right there is phenomenal. But I'm not preaching Psalm 23 this morning. I'm preaching Psalm 24. That's the reason why so many times it gets overlooked. But this is a very important psalm that we all need to know and read. Let's read this together. Uh, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. The, the passage of Scripture will be on the screen. It says in Psalm 24, this is a psalm of David. So the psalmist is David in writing this. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So as we look at Psalm 24, the first Two verses that I'm going to dive into. Actually, it'll go all the way down through verse 5, this first title. But the first thing we're going to look at, encompassed in this thought of who is this? Who is he? Who is the Lord? It says the earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So who is this? He is the Lord. He is the Lord. 
He is the owner, the founder, and the keeper of the planet. That's who he is. Warren Wearsby says it this way. The earth is the Lord's. Everything on it and in it is God's. And all the people on the earth are God's. But I'll put this little stipulation in here. This does not mean that, uh, this does not mean that every person on the planet, are, they are God's children. But they are his by, by the fact that he is the creator. This does not mean they're God's children, but rather his creation. So as creator, he has sovereignty over each and every single person. And every person is made in his image and accountable to him. Whether they realize who the Lord is or not, every person is held accountable before him. Whether they fall on their knees this side of death or on the other side of death, one day they will be held accountable to who he is. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. And if you submit to him on this side of death, you will have an eternity to spend with him. But if you submit to that, submit to him on the other side of death, you will live departed from him. Because at that point, you will realize that he is who all the Bible has said he is. And there will be no second chances beyond the grave. You get that opportunity here. We give that opportunity here. That's the reason why the mission of the disciple is so important to go forth and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost and to teach them all the things that Jesus has commanded us because he will be with us to the end of the age. That's the reason why it's so important because you don't know when the last breath will be of an individual. You yourself, you don't know that. From the youngest of young to the oldest of old, we don't know what the next second holds, much less the next minute, hour, or day. So we are on an urgent mission to share the gospel that He is the Lord Almighty. He is the possessor of heaven and earth, and we are guests on His planet, stewards of all He gives us to enjoy and employ. The language here used by the psalmist, used by David, the Lord founded and established. You see that there. Uh, in verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas. He's talking about the earth. And he established it. He established the earth upon the water. It's a metaphor taken from the building of a city or temple. And like a temple, the earth was depicted as having foundations and pillars. We see that in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 18. In the ancient Near East, temples were thought of as the microcosms of the world created. So language applicable to a temple could be uh, readily applied to the earth. The Lord's work as creator establishes his right to rulership. He is the creator, so therefore he has the right to rule over his creation. Verse 2 is a recollection of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There you sell that in verse 2 as we read just a moment ago. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So there in verse 3, the psalmist David poses this question of the credentials of those who could present themselves before the Lord God. We see that there in verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord. And the second question is, or who may stand in his holy place? He asks this question. And to ascend, this, is a, this has got theological significance 
in that this verb is used in relationship to a person's appearance before God. One must go up to stand before the Lord. And to stand is the ability through Christ to be vertical in posture before the Holy God. It's to be vertical in posture before the Holy God. The first time anyone presents themselves before the Holy God, it is not in a vertical posture. It is in a bowed down, should be on your knees, bowed down, giving it before God, humbly coming before Him, understanding the sinfulness that we have before a Holy God. So we come before Him. And that's the first prayer that God hears of the sinner is the prayer of repentance. God, I repent of my sins. I call upon you. I confess you as Lord. I believe in my heart, God. You raised yourself from the dead. The, the prayer of the lost individual is never heard until the, the, the coming of the understanding, the movement of the Holy Spirit, for them to be able to say that you are Lord God. And I submit to your Lordship. And through that, I understand where I stand, which is nowhere close to you because you are a holy God. So I come holy, I come humbly, excuse me, before you, before your holiness. Because He is the Lord God. He is the creator of heaven and earth. It's all His. There's nothing that we can touch today that does not belong to Him. It is all God's. So we stand only so to stand, so to ascend. Who can't ascend? Who can't stand? It's only those who have first nailed. It is only those who have first knelt before the Lord that can stand before the presence of the holy and mighty God. So to stand means that one has already humbled themselves before God. Before the Lord, for salvation. And now who can stand? It's those that can come because through the shed blood of Christ, they've been forgiven. And Christ's righteousness has been applied to your account, so therefore you can stand before God. Not in your ability. Not in your pride or arrogance. It's all in humility, in the glory of God and in the righteousness and, and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we can even stand in the presence of God. Pride has no place before the throne of God because the scripture tells us a haughty spirit, uh, those with a haughty spirit will fall and those uh, with pride will come to destruction. So we must be cautious and come humbly before the throne. Although we have been forgiven of sin, although the righteousness of Christ has been placed to our account, it still doesn't mean that we come prideful because we've done nothing to deserve the ability to stand before a holy God. It's still only through Christ. It's still only through Christ. So to stand and to ascend, David asked that question, who has the capability to do such a thing? Who of us, who among us can do that? Well, he answers this, there in verses 4 and 5, he says, It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. So when, Paul, when, when David answers this question, he who has, that is present tense, he who has clean hands. The Bible tells us that we should constantly go before the Lord confessing our sins. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before we could stand, we still got to kneel. We still, before we could stand, we still got to kneel. 
We got to come humbly, prayerfully before the throne of God. He is a mighty God. The Bible tells us, don't fear the man who can take your soul. Fear the man, don't fear the man who can take your life. Fear the man who can take your life and your soul. We come humbly before the throne of God. The Bible says, um, for those, those who fall upon the stone will be broken, but those upon whom the stone falls will be crushed. So we must fall upon the stone of God. We must fall upon that chief cornerstone and we'll be broken. Yes, we will because against his holiness, we will see our lacking. We will see our sin. But God is a great potter and he will put us back together for what are we but clay. So if we fall upon him, he will, he will fix us back together. But like I said earlier, those who do not choose or those who do not confess that he is Lord beyond the grave, there will be no putting them back together. They will for eternity dwell apart from Christ in a place where there is, where there is gnashing of teeth and where the worm never dies. It's a place called hell. And we don't want anybody to go there. That's not God's desire either. So we as Christians must go and tell, who is this Lord? Who is this Lord? He is mighty and strong and powerful. I'm not going to preach that part yet because I ain't got there. But he gives an answer, David does, as to who can ascend and stand before the Lord. It says, it's, it is he who has clean hands. And he who has, that's current, present, ongoing. That means it's, that you're constantly coming before the Lord, meaning that you have a relationship with him. Those that you have a relationship with, you're going to talk to them regularly. You talk to him in the morning. If you're married and you've got a spouse or, or maybe your spouse has, 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 uh, went on to be with the Lord. But during that time, you spoke to him in the morning. You spoke to him in the evening. And there today, you know, for those of us that, that are still married, now we've got smartphones. You send little kiss emojis or hug emojis or you, you send something to let them know I'm thinking about you all during the day. You know, you're staying in contact some way, shape, or fashion, right? Your children. I mean, some of you may be even texting your kids at school. I'll never forget when Brogan and Taryn were in school. They had texted me. I'm like, you're not supposed to have your phone at school. <laughs> you know, out at school. It, it, but yet, you know, we had text. And so, um, I mean, even one time, uh, one of my young men that was in my youth group, I said, hey, man, you free for lunch? And he said, yeah. I said, great. Let's, let's grab some lunch. Well, kind of find out, I didn't know. He was at school. But we met for lunch at Los Reyes. And then he blew his tire out by hitting the curb. And, and so he was late getting back to school. And I didn't know he was going to get in trouble for it. But nonetheless... Because I had a relationship with him, I want to spend time with him. That's the same thing with the Lord. The Lord wants us to spend time with him. And if we'll spend time with him, we come before him, we confess our sins, we'll have a great relationship. Is it the best relationships where there's transparency and honesty? Right? Well, that's the same thing God wants with you. Let him who comes before him, it's he who has clean hands. That's a life that is characterized by moral integrity including guiltless actions. That's what that means by having clean hands. It's he who has a pure heart. That, may, that means a life characterized by right attitudes and motives. What, what, is, what has led you to make that decision? Not just to make the decision, but what led you to make that decision? I think a lot of our issues come from the fact that we have not we have not pursued Christ to remove the sinfulness from our lives. And we're just making decisions. And from that, there's a motive of selfishness. But if we will confess our sins, he will give us pure motive. He will give us clarity of mind and heart so that we'll make wise choices that honor and glorify him. He who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart, he 
who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. He doesn't lift their soul to an idol. A life that refuses to worship false gods. There's plenty of gods today. You may say, I, 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 don't, see, I don't see that many gods. What are you talking about? Listen, we're not living in the archaic days, okay? All right? We're not living where they go outside and they cut down a tree and they carve a bunch of uh, animals and stuff into a totem pole. We're not talking about idols like that. We're not talking about where you go to Artemis and Diana and, and, and all these different things. Like all those, some people are real weird and they still think those things exist. But nonetheless, people have those type gods. But today our gods are our phones. Our gods are our social media platforms. We go back to it, back to it. Did somebody like that post? Did somebody look at that post? Did it share that post? And then your god becomes your social media. Your god becomes your presence or your ability to influence. You better be mindful about that. It doesn't matter. Where are you in God's sight? Where are you in your relationship with God? That's what matters. And don't get me wrong, I've, I've got an online presence, you know what I mean? I've, I've got an Instagram, and I've got a Facebook, and, and a TikTok, and I've got those different things, you know? And, and, and I, I enjoy those things, but I've got to be mindful and careful. It's the most convicting thing, and I don't know why, I don't know how y'all does it, but on Sunday morning, usually my father will say, Oh, your, your time online has decreased this week, or it's gone up this week. And a lot of times I'd be teaching my youth when I used to teach students, and it would be right in the middle of class. And I'd be like, mm, Lord, why you got to convict me like that right now? Sitting here talking to these kids about having a relationship with you, and you're telling me that I've got too good of a relationship with my phone. I'm telling you guys, it's, it's the, the God of our lives is, is really not Jesus anymore for much of us. And I can't speak for everybody, but it's our phone. That's who we worship. We wake up in the morning, what's the first thing we do? We look at our phone. Many of you go to the bathroom, you still get your phone in your hand. <laughs> huh? can't, even, can't even do the things you should do in, in private without having it there in your hand. I mean, they even make toilet paper dispensers now with cell phone holders on them. I'm, I'm serious. I mean, they're out there. I mean, that's become our God. We can't just leave it. Some of you are like, I've got one of those in the house. Oh, man. You know, I've seen this. I, we were moving an individual into a home, and, uh, and they had, a, they had a, a, little, a little sign up. It was cute. It's funny. It said, text if we're out of toilet paper. Obviously, you had your, your phone in your hand, you know. But this is our God. This is what, what it's become. And listen, I say that because, you know what, I've been guilty there, too. Anyway. So, I mean, we, we, we need to be mindful of who we are spending the most time with. We need, to have, we need to be careful about who we lift our souls to. And they don't swear deceitfully. It's a life characterized by dealing in honesty in all aspects of life. It's important. Like I said, God just wants to have a transparent relationship with you and I. And it's the truth. That's what he wants for us. And listen, whether you realize it or not, your life is transparent to him. The thing is, is God wants you to be transparent with him. He already knows it. The Bible tells us, uh, I can't remember if it's his Psalms or Proverbs, but it tells us that our sins are ever before him. He knows that. So don't try to hide it. You can try to hide it all you want to, but the fact is it's right there. It's right there. So we don't need to swear deceitfully. So what comes to those who live in this way? Who lives, who, what comes to these? Obviously, it's the ability to stand before God. It's the ability to ascend into the hill of the, God, uh, hill of the Lord. But there in verse, six, uh, verse uh, 5, it says, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who doesn't want to receive a blessing from the Lord? 
I want to receive a blessing of the Lord. So what should I desire to do? Have clean hands. Have a pure heart. Not worship false gods and not swear deceitfully. That's what I should desire to do. My life should desire to be above reproach. As all of us who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior should desire. It's not just for a deacon or a pastor. That is a call to all people who have called upon Christ as Lord and Savior. To have a life that is above reproach. That's the desire. We should be that. The person will receive the blessing of the Lord. What is the blessing of the Lord? Sometimes it, throughout the Bible, the blessing of the Lord is the, the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a statement of saying you've received the blessing of the Lord. You've received the Holy Spirit. So what are you going to do with the Holy Spirit? Once you've professed Christ as Lord and Savior, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So do something with it. And it says this person will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the right walk leading to the ability to ascend and stand before the holy God. Jesus Christ is the only person righteous. So it is in him we stand and it is him we ascend. So who are we? Look there in verse 6. Who are we? Verse 6 says this is Jacob. The generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. This is, this is a poetic description. This is especially appropriate since Jacob wrestled with God and saw him face to face. And only afterward was his name changed to Israel. He wrestled with God and God touched his hip. You know, he come out with a hemp, with a, with a limp on his hip. I've combined those two where he come out with a hemp. <laughs> no, he didn't. He came out with a limp because God touched his, his hip. Okay, here we go. There's our CBD reference for the day. Um, so he, he came out with, with, with a limp because God touched his hip. And then we know uh, Israelites wouldn't eat uh, the shank of the hip, uh, the meat of the hip. Uh, so, but anyway, he, he touched him because he saw him face to face. We are to be a generation of Jacob where we see God face to face. We should desire to see God face to face. We are to be a people of devotion. That's one thing that when I think about Jacob, I think about a man of devotion. Now, granted, he didn't start off on the right foot, did he? None of us did. We start off, obviously, in, in one literal way, he started off hanging on to a foot. But we didn't start off on the right foot. And we come out, we're sinful people. We need Christ. Jacob needed God so that he could make the right decisions. We need Christ in our life to make the right decisions. And so we need him. Now, granted, Jacob made some strange decisions in his life, but God still used him. We've all made strange, weird decisions in our life, but yet God still chooses to use us if we will submit to his lordship. But we are to be a people that are devoted. We are a people of devotion, just as Jacob was to God. Jacob was not perfect, but he listened to God and did as God said in the years to come. And you can find that in Genesis 35, 9 through 15. We devote ourselves to the Lord. We devote ourselves to his desires, the salvation of the lost, the discipling of the found, and the glory of God. That's the desires of God. It is the salvation of the lost, the discipling of the found, and the glory of God. Those are three pretty simple things that God calls us to. Every church should be about that. Every believer should be about that. It is not one person's job alone to 
go out and share salvation for the lost. It's not one person's job alone to disciple those that are found. It's not one person's job alone to bring glory to God. Every single person who is called upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, it is their responsibility to do all three of those things. It is our responsibility. We should be a people that are devoted to the Lord. We are to be a people of pursuit. You see a generation of those who seek him. We should seek out the Lord for our lives so that he may lead our lives. David goes on to say in a couple of chapters over in Psalm 27, 4 and 8. He says this, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. That will I seek. And this is what it is that, that David said that he would uh, desire to seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And in verse 8 says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, not my lips. Notice what David says, not my lips, but my heart said, your face, Lord, I will seek. Your face, Lord, I will seek. So there in Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We should seek that out. Now, once you've confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us that once you are in the Father's hand, nothing can pluck you from the Father's hand. If you have made a true confession of faith of Jesus Christ as your Lord, there is no power powerful enough to open up the hand of God to pry you from it. Nothing. So either you have Christ as Lord or you don't. Period. There is no losing your salvation because then you're saying you're powerful enough to step out of the hand of God or you're saying somebody's more powerful than God to rip you from the hand of God. One of the two. Either you're saved or you're lost. There is no in-between. There is no standing on the fingernail hanging over to your life. You're either in it or you're out. I've said this before. Uh, our, our dean at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, he said if the, if the devil could pry you out of the hand of God, he'd have to swim through the blood of Christ. He'd, walk up, he'd have to walk up the gates of heaven. He'd have to break the seal of the Holy Spirit. And he'd have to pry back the very hand of God. And if he could do that, he'd be one saved devil. He can't do it. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either saved or you're lost. So we want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. To behold the beauty of the Lord. That means that you're present enough to see him and to dwell and to inquire in his temple. That means that you should be faithful. We should be in the Lord's house. We should be in the Lord's house. And when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. We should be a people of pursuit. David's desire was to be with the Lord forever. For the Old Testament forefathers, this meant having an intimate relationship with him that poured over into their lives after death. But David also included beholding the beauty of the Lord and inquiring in his temple. David understood the importance of being in the Lord's temple. And we too must understand the value of being present with the Lord personally and corporately with the body of Christ. When the Lord changes you, you will change what you pursue. David did and you and I should too. When you've been changed by the Lord, you will change what you pursue. We are to be a people of intimacy. Look there at the latter part there, verse 6. 
who seek your face. You know, to seek someone's face is a portrait of intimacy. It's exactly what that is. It is one thing to have a long-distance relationship, isn't it? Any of y'all ever experienced a long-distance relationship? Maybe you dated somebody and, and, you know, prior to, like, FaceTime and all that kind of stuff, you had to write letters, right? Some of you might have been, might have went off in the military, and you were stationed somewhere. And, and the only way you could communicate was to write a letter back. My mom used to tell me about how when Dad was in Vietnam, and, and he would write back to Mom, and she'd sit on that couch, and she'd read those letters from Dad. And she, and she would read those, and she said she would cry, missing my dad. And she had a little chihuahua, and that little chihuahua would cry too. How crazy is that? But she said, she said I remember that. But there's that they desire to, seek, to see one another face-to-face, -face, hoping that that day would come. And listen, I've, I've never experienced a long-distance relationship. Now, my parents live two hours away, but that's not too bad. I can go back to see them, and Julie's parents live about two hours and 20 minutes away. Depending on how I drive, I can get there a little faster. But, you know, but today's a little different. You know, we can pull out these phones, and I can FaceTime call them. I've been to Brazil and FaceTime or uh, through, through Facebook Messenger called Julie in Brazil. And like almost simultaneous, it's conversation face-to-face. -face. It's insane technology, isn't it? I mean, you think about that. That's so wild to think about. Anyway, so, so but it's different today. But to seek the Lord face-to-face -face is about intimacy. To be in someone's face means that, that they're letting you into their personal bubble. You're going to smell their breath. You're going to smell their cologne or their deodorant or not. And, and you're going to... And, and, and you're right there with them. There's an intimacy to it. Right? And God wants that intimacy with us. He wants us to be that close to Him. He wants us that close to seek Him face to face. As David says, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. David wrote here in Psalm 24, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face. We desire a relationship to be that close to the Lord God. And that's what we should pursue. Uh, 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 we should be people of intimacy. But I want you to understand this. Desire for it. Desire does not create intimacy. Discipline does. Desire does not create intimacy. Discipline does. We must discipline ourselves to intimacy. You want a better relationship with your wife? Discipline yourself to make her a priority. You want a better relationship with your children? Discipline yourself to make them a priority. You want a better relationship with the Lord? Discipline yourself to make Him a priority. You want intimacy with the Lord? You've got to discipline yourself into it. Desire does not create intimacy. Discipline does. When we have these characteristics, we will move forward in the reception of the Lord, in the invitation to the Lord, through the proclaiming of the Lord. Look there, verses 7 and 9. 7 and 9. Not 7, 8 and 9, but just 7 and 9. It's the exact same thing said twice, okay? Same exact thing said twice, okay? That's the reason why I bundled them together. So that speed us up a little bit. It says, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Warren Wearsby gives this reason for why that verse was repeated twice. He said the king of glory is Jesus Christ. When he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the whole city didn't receive him and praise him. 
This psalm had been sung that morning in the temple when Christ entered. But it wasn't applied to Jesus of Nazareth. Instead of accepting him and honoring him, the leaders rejected him and sent him to Golgotha to be crucified. However, in his death and resurrection, Jesus won the battle against Satan and sin. And when he ascended back to heaven and entered the heavenly Zion, he was received as the victorious Lord of hosts and the King of glory. And he will return again. That's the reason why it's done twice. That's the reason why it's done twice. So this is representative of his first coming. Christ was not fully welcomed nor received, but at his second coming... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So in the knowledge of who, of who Christ is, we should receive Christ for who he is and proclaim him. Well, how do we receive him? We receive him in three different ways. We receive him in his victory. We receive him with joy. And we receive him with celebration. Martin Luther once translated this as open wide the portals. That is, give a hearty welcome to the Lord. Talking about opening up the gates. Lift up your head, all you gates, and be lifted up your everlasting doors. Open wide the portals. Give a hearty welcome to the Lord. The city gates in those days are equivalent to our city hall today. And this is a command to the entire city to welcome the Lord in his victory. He says, welcome him up. Open the doors. Open these doors. The Lord God is victorious. Let him come in. Let him come in. Jesus has overcome the grave, death, hell, and Satan. And that is his victory. And we should receive him in his victory. We receive him with joy. The lifting of the gates and doors are literal in the sense uh, for Christ's triumphant entry into the city, the gates must have been opened. As for us, in our reception of Christ, we are to serve in the opening of the doors and rejoice for the entering king of glory has returned. We are the servants opening the door, saying, receive in the king. Welcome him in. He has been victorious in battle. And he has returned, conquering death, hell, and the grave. So we are to serve in joy. We are to serve in welcoming the king. And we are also to receive him with celebration. We're to receive him with celebration. How many of you like to have, have a good party? I like to have a good party. Have a good time, you know? I always like it when you get to surprise somebody. You open up the door and you say, surprise, you know, happy birthday or whatever it may be, right? Well, there wasn't no surprise. You know why? Because there was a celebration outside the doors because everybody knew he'd done one. So the inevitable outcome is just open up the doors. There's celebration everywhere. He's won. The victory has, has come to Christ. It's never been in question. It's never been in question. And when the king returned, there was a great celebration. Think back to when Saul and David returned to the kingdom in 1 Samuel 18.6. It says this, Now it happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that um, the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. There should be a celebration. When we open these doors, when we open these doors, it should be a celebration every Sunday. We're serving a risen king, not a dead king. He didn't die in battle. He won in battle. And he's going to come back and he's going to win in a second battle. He's, he's just victorious. The Bible says when he returns, he's going to come with a, with a, on a white horse. There's no intent of him even to get dirty. Because you know why? Because ain't nobody going to stand a chance against him. 
He's a mighty and powerful king. And when he comes in, there's going to be a celebration. He has returned. I'm looking forward to it. So here's our message to all people. Here's our message to all people, verses 8 and 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And then verse 10, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The Lord strong and mighty. This is our message to all people. Everywhere we go. The Lord is strong and mighty. The Lord's strength will be known as he returns in his regality and pomp as the overcoming and conquering king. He will be proclaimed because all will have thought the kingdoms of this world were insurmountable. We look around today. Now we think and I believe we've got the greatest country there is. I believe that we're uh, we, our army has proved its point. We're mighty and powerful. But listen, this army that we have, you know, everybody talks about China's got a great big army, the Ch army of China, everywhere else, they are nothing compared to God Almighty when he returns, when he breaks through those clouds. Listen, there's going to be nothing that's going to be able to stand in his way. There is no army greater than the army of God. He is a conquering king. And Jesus gives us hope there in 1633. These things I have spoken unto you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There is no army, no enemy that's more powerful than Christ. Christ has overcome them all. And the greatest enemy of mankind, sin, death, and the grave has been conquered and overcome by Christ. No reason to fear. No reason to fear this world because this world has nothing to offer. This world has nothing it can take away from me. What has been given to me through Christ will always be mine for eternity. So I don't have to fear. He is strong and mighty. The Lord is mighty in battle. In Exodus 15, 3, the scripture tells us the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. There is no battle the Lord has lost or will lose. Revelation 17, 14 says... These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. I don't know if the Lord's going to call me up. I don't know if I'll still be here at that time. Boy, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to be up in the air. I've talked about that in the past. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But if I'm already in heaven and God chooses me to be a part of his army to come on back with him, I'm called, I'm chosen, and I'm faithful. Man, I can't wait for that day. That's going to be pretty amazing, right? When he comes back, he's mighty in battle. He's the Lord of hosts. It tells us there, uh, there in verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. This is one of the great Old Testament titles for God. This title of host may include the armies of Israel. But more emphatically, this proclaims him as the Lord over the heavenly army. He is Lord over the heavenly armies. Over half of its nearly 500 uses come in the phrase, the Lord of hosts. The phrase is absent from the first five books of the Bible, but it's frequently used in the prophets. The phrase introduces a divine declaration. He is presented as uh, the mighty warrior king, returning victorious in battle. He is the mightiest warrior of all, the warrior, uh, the leader of heaven's armies as indicated by, both by the miraculous military victories he had won for Israel, as well as by what he will one day do in the person of Jesus, who will strike down the nations and tread the winepress 
of the fierce wrath of God, Revelation 19.5. He is the Lord of hosts. So who is this King of glory? This title is used 300 times in the Old Testament. The King of glory. This title wraps all the titles of God into one. Wraps all the titles into one. Glory is commonly referred to as heaven. So he is the king of heaven. He is the king of glory. Glory is also what is ascribed to him. He is glorious. So he is the king of glory. The greatest glory that can be bestowed upon a person which uh, he has is his. He is the king of glory. And glory is also the radiance of his holiness. The only descriptor that is given of Christ three times, of God three times, is holy, holy, holy. That means to be separate. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is unique. He is preeminent. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's who He is. That's who God is. That's who Christ is. He is the King of glory. So as we look at this today, and we come to a conclusion, today Jesus Christ uh, is, was, and forever will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's just, who do you say that He is today in your own life? 